When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. REMAX agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. In order to support our show, we need the help of some great advertisers. And we want to make sure those advertisers are ones you'll actually want to hear about. But we need to learn a little more about you to make that possible. So go to podsurvey.com slash artofman and take a quick anonymous survey that will help us get to know you better. That way, we can bring on advertisers you won't want to skip. Once you've completed the quick survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash artofman, A-R-T-O-F-M-A-N, podsurvey.com slash artofman. Thanks for your help. All right, so tell me if this has happened to you guys. You're lying in bed at night, and right before you doze off to sleep, you have this thought that right now, tens of millions of people across the country at this exact moment, same as you, are lying down on these rectangular-shaped mattresses and are about to be unconscious for the next eight hours while having hallucinations. Because that's what sleep is when you think about it. And when you think about it that way, sleep's kind of weird. And it's kind of weird that we sleep the way we do. I think we take it for granted that you sleep from, you know, about 10 until 8 or so if you wake up late. But our guest today makes the case that this hasn't always been the case and that for most of human history, sleep has actually been very unique to communities and to individuals. And it wasn't until about the 19th century until the whole world basically got on this sleep schedule where you sleep from 10 o'clock at night till about seven o'clock in the morning, then you work during the day, no naps, and then you repeat the process. Before then, sleep was much more individualistic. It was unique to different communities. And it's this whole radical transformation of sleep has had profound changes, effects on the way we approach life, work, and sleep. Our guest is named Matthew Wolf Meyer. He's a professor of anthropology at the University of California, Santa Cruz. And he's the author of a very fascinating book called The Slumbering Masses. And it's basically a cultural study, an anthropological look at sleep and why we sleep the way we do. Uh, in this podcast, we discuss when the transformation to sleep as we know today happened. We discuss the medicalization of sleep. And all the things we do to improve our sleep with over-the-counter medications, but also the things we use to jolt ourselves awake so we can stick to this work schedule that we have, either through coffee, tea, now energy drinks. Um, anyways, fascinating discussion. I think you really like it. And we even get into what you can do if you have a sleep schedule where it just doesn't fit with the, the norm, right? The working norm or the school schedule, what you can do to work with that. Um, so great discussion. Thank you got a lot of out of it. Without further ado, Matthew Wolfmeyer and the Slumbering Masses. Matthew Wolfmeyer, thank you so much for being here. Welcome to the show. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. All right. So your book, The Slumbering Masses, is a book about sleep, but it's different from a lot of the books have, that have come out about sleep in the, recent, in the past 10 years, I'd say, where it's all had about how to get better sleep, the science of sleep. Your book is a is like a cultural study of sleep and the sociology of sleep. What made you want to research the anthropology of sleep in America? Uh -huh. So um, it depends how uh, far back you want to go. I mean, if you and we'll probably talk about a lot of the stuff as we go. But um, I was always a problem sleeper. So like as a kid. Throughout middle school and high school, I had pretty, what I thought were abnormal sleeping times, like going to sleep really late, having to wake up for school, needing to take naps during the day. Um, and then when I was in college, it gave me the opportunity to tailor a schedule sort of around my sleep. And what ended up happening was I got a job working third shift, so I worked from like 10 p.m. until 8 a.m., which was okay with me. And then I would go to school 
from eight until 10 o'clock in the morning and then go to school from like five until eight o'clock at night. And that all totally worked. Um, and, and at the time I had a bunch of coworkers who just could not handle the schedule. And whenever they were off work, like on their weekends, they would end up trying to sleep like everybody else did. And it, it was like a decade later, as I started to do the research that I realized how bad of an idea that actually is. But at the, so at the time I was always kind of attuned to different kinds of sleeping. And I always really enjoyed, this was in Metro Detroit, like at four o'clock in the morning, just being able to step out into the middle of a otherwise very busy street and seeing the world kind of sleeping around me and being like the one person that was awake. Um, and so when it came, it came time to actually develop a research project much later, um, I had initially thought that what I was going to do is write a book about night work. So um, not just people kind of doing factory work in the middle of the night, but like all of the stuff that happens at night in order to make society work throughout the day. So security guards and police, ambulance drivers, nurses, ER doctors, um, sanitation workers, construction workers. I thought that I would just tell this kind of big story about labor at night. And in my initial idea about that project, I thought that <clears throat> I would write one chapter that would be about what everybody else was doing. And so everyone else would be sleeping. The way that I would get into that would be uh, going to a sleep clinic. Um, and uh, just by sheer happenstance, there was a piece um, in the New York Times Magazine profiling a sleep center near where I was a graduate student. And so I got in touch with the director and they invited me over for lunch one day and kind of gave me the tour. And probably within 10 minutes of being there, I thought like, oh, this is the real project. Like the, I can do everything that I want to do just by talking about sleep in American society. And they were all, the doctors and the researchers that I was spending time with there, were all really interested in having an anthropologist hang out with them. Like they had a bunch of questions yeah. and they thought that, uh, like I didn't know the answer to any of their questions at the time. But they figured that they could task me with answering the questions that they had. And so it was just kind of off to the races from that point. Like that, <clears throat> as soon as I got into it, I was like, oh, obviously this is the project. And the other thing, like you kind of mentioned in the intro, nobody's written this book, right? That like, if you look at the literature out there, there's a lot of kind of self-helpy stuff. There's a lot of you know, popular science books that are like, this is why we sleep. Um, although nobody actually really knows why we sleep, yeah. but they have <laughs> it. Um, and, uh, and stuff written by scientists, right? So there's a bunch of books by scientists about sleep, but they're really uncritical, right? They accept sleep as it is, right? And so I figured there's a huge window here that uh i guess needs to be jumped through and i was the guy who jumped through that window very good so one of the, <clears throat> the main points you make in the book is americans today sort of take for granted our current sleeping schedule we all assume that since time immemorial people have went to bed between the hours of 10 you know around then and they woke up at seven or so by seven to go to work but you make the case that well, no that's not how sleep was until about the 19th century. So what was sleep like before this sort of, what you, what's called consolidated sleep, right? The eight uh, hours. One of the things that got me started on the project was this book written by a historian named Roger E. Kirch called At Day's Close. And in at the end of that book, he writes a chapter about basically a hypothesis that he has that um, people before industrialization slept in what, we now refer to as a biphasic model. Um, and he was looking at the UK and some historical documents that he had. And what he was hinting at is that people would go to sleep around sundown. They would sleep for a few hours. They'd wake up in the middle of the night for a period that could be anywhere between like an hour and four hours. Then they would go back to sleep and then wake up around dawn to go to work. And, um, 
And when you think about it, it makes a lot of sense because it's not like nighttime is eight hours long. And even if it, you know, even if it is some of the time, it's not consistently eight hours long, nor is it eight hours long everywhere around the world all the time, right? So the idea that sleep and darkness are necessarily tied together is just wrong on the face of it, right? And when you think about the availability of electric light, people, like, especially the working classes, don't have cheap, accessible electric light, in some cases until after the turn of the 20th century, right? So you have... So there's that that set of circumstances. So I started to look at the historical record in the United States and particularly the um, medical monographs and medical pamphlets and medical articles that are published kind of at the end of the 1700s through the 1800s. And um, what people are identifying is is exactly this pattern of sleep, right? That people are going to sleep around sundown, they sleep for a few hours, wake up, go back to sleep. And they sometimes refer to it as first sleep and second sleep, or first nap and second nap, um, first slumber, second slumber, that kind of thing. And um, and the reason why they're talking about it is because it's a problem for the new industrial work schedule. And so historically what's happening is that people are moving from the countryside where they're working either on their family farm, somebody else's family farm, or in a trade that's probably owned by someone that they know very intimately because they're living in small settings, to big urban centers where they're one of thousands of strangers working in a factory for somebody that they have no relationship to, right? And so in their old work situations, Work times vary. If you need to take a nap, you can probably take a nap. If you need to go home early because there's an emergency, no problem. But when you're working for a large factory where everybody's anonymous, any of those kinds of uh, variances are fireable offenses, right? And there's a long line of people just waiting to take those jobs. So people are put into these consolidated workdays that are structured by the availability of free sunlight, right? So electric light's not available for most of these factories. Um, There's some gaslighting, but generally the way the factories are operating is they open at dawn, they close at dusk, and there's one shift, and everybody works from dawn until dusk. And so what happens to people's sleep is that they're so exhausted at the end of the day that they consolidate their sleep. And so the idea of consolidated sleep is really something that's based on a new model of exhaustion. So if you were working in a way where you could take a nap whenever you needed to, you're never as exhausted as you are when you have to stay awake for 16 hours at a stretch, right? Um, And so what happens in the medical literature is all these doctors are identifying the biphasic model as being a problem. They start to refer to it as insomnia, and they start to think about ways to treat that problem, right? There's a lot of scare tactics involved, too, that um, they're really trying to shame people away from sleeping in a biphasic way. Um, And So you really see from basically the beginning of American medicine and American industrial capitalism, this tie between medicine and capitalism around shaping what workers are supposed to do and how they operate. The thing is that um, that consolidated model of the workday links up with the consolidated model of the school day, right? So for the working classes, what do you do with your kids? You have to send them somewhere. So the state basically steps in and gives public education um, to the working classes in a way that had never been available before. And so kids are going to school at the same time that their parents are at work. And, um, And so you slowly see over the course of the 19th century, all of these institutions that we kind of take for granted in American social life abiding by the same set of ideas about time. And um, and so by the turn of the 20th century, and this is really the beginning of sleep science as a science, 
the earliest guy whose name is Nathaniel Kleitman, and he's a, a professor of physiology at the University of Chicago, he's starting to do research on sleep, and his assumption is that people sleep in a consolidated way, right? So he's carrying it into the basis of the science, and he's not allowing napping or variations in sleeping schedules. It's really what you're testing is consolidated sleep. And so what happens is he develops a model of our circadian rhythms that's based on consolidated sleep rather than biphasic sleep, and that's the model of circadian rhythms that everybody uses to this day. Basically, so we really don't know what human sleep would look like outside of the context of sort of industrial capitalism and the structure around time. Yeah, I want to get back to that uh, your point about insomnia and sleep disorder because I think that's really interesting. What I found fascinating in your book is that you, yeah, you point out that the way we sleep is primarily economically and productivity driven. You made that interesting point how Ben Franklin was one of the early guys, you know, early to bed, early to rise, makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise. And one of his reasons he kind of advocated for uh, consolidated sleep was that it saved money on candles, right? Like, right. He, like he went to France and he saw that they just, they wasted all this, you know, this candle wick, you know, partying and carousing in the night and they didn't get up in the day to go, you know, be productive. He said, well, no, if they just slept eight hours, they would save on candles. Uh, right. And if they just slept when it's dark rather than having yeah. to use to light everything. Right. And the, the, I mean, the great thing about that essay of his is that he does the math to figure out how much it costs to burn something like 40,000 candles a week. Right. Which like, is an insane amount of candles. Right. But if you're a French aristocrat, apparently that's what you do. Yeah. So, yeah. so yeah, we, we, this consolidated sleep model we take for granted and it was because of cultural and economic changes in America going from an agrarian to an, an industrial economy. And you make the point that this American way of sleeping has been, has spread to other countries. Can you talk a little bit about how that, how our idea of sleeping has spread across the world? So in two ways, primarily. So first, like I was just talking about the, the, in the science, what happens is scientific models that are invented in the United States get exported elsewhere. And so you would think that societies where there's long-standing napping traditions like Spain and their siesta culture, like China, like Taiwan, like Italy, um, that they would have sleep scientists working under different assumptions, but in fact, they just buy into the American model whole hog. And so it really shapes the science and medicine of sleep around the world. And, uh, and secondarily, it's structured around uh, ideas around capitalist work time, right? So recently, um, maybe not that recently anymore, 10 years ago, um, in the early stages of the European Union, Spain came under a lot of fire, in part from conservative movements within Spain, about getting rid of the siesta so that they would be more productive, like Germany and France and England. And so what they do in order to make that happen is they pass laws that all state agencies, like the postal service only operates between nine and five o'clock, right? So everybody else has to sync up to that time. And, and so we see that kind of synchronization pressure happen in a variety of ways. One of the things that I was really interested in um, is the synchronization between like the United States and call centers in India and the Philippines too, right? And so they, what we've exported to them in order to harness their labor is our calendar and our work week. So they get synced up in a kind of inverted way to our work time so that they're awake while we're awake, right? Um, and they're asleep while all, everybody else in their society is awake, right? And they abide by our holidays and, you know, like the, the structure of how, and so like our work week, if you look at how it maps onto their work week is hours different, right? And yet they're working on their Sundays in order to be available on our Mondays, right? Um, so there's really pervasive and sort of subtle ways that that has, uh, 
that our ideas about sleep have kind of structured other societies. So going back to that, uh, this idea of sleeping disorders, because before sleep science, there really wasn't such such where there wasn't sleep disorders, right? Mm-hmm. There, um, insomnia didn't really exist because people were in a biphasic model. So, and you make the point in the book or the case that sleeping disorders aren't so much a well, they are a health issue, but they're also a social problem. And that's the thing that drives people to sleep centers and to medication. So can you explain that a little bit? How, how, is, how, has, how are sleep disorders social problems? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, so one really quick thing that, like, we actually have pretty good descriptions of a lot of the sleep disorders that goes back at least to 1820. So there's a, a Scottish physician named Robert McNish who writes this book called The Philosophy of Sleep. Um, where he is basically coming up with descriptions for insomnia and narcolepsy um, and uh, like drowsiness of various kinds. And um, he basically gets written out of the history of sleep science and medicine. I'm not entirely sure why. Um, But I think part of it is that by the conditions of the 1820s, all of these kinds of medical... Uh, experiences are very, very rare. And it's not until the 1840s and really the 1880s that something like insomnia is something that's generalizable to broad swaths of the population, right? Um, And, you know, that medicine is more and more available to people more broadly. But in terms of the kind of like how are sleep disorders social disorders, probably, you know, the the best examples are the ones that are about like schedules for sleep interfering with schedules for work or for school. And so, um, for example, one of the um, stories that I often tell and I'll tell again is that at the sleep clinic, they would often see adolescents or teenagers who had problems waking up for uh, public school time. So they couldn't get to school by 7.30 in the morning. It was probably more like 10 o'clock. And so what they had done is figured out um, what the school start times for all of the schools in the area were. They would figure out what an individual student um, would wake up around and what kind of sleep need they would go need. And they, they would recommend them to particular schools, right? So there were a bunch of kids who couldn't wake up until 10 o'clock in the morning that all went to Catholic school, despite not being Catholic because it fit their sleep schedule. Right. And, um, the alternative is that like you end up having to wake up to go to school at seven thirty, and you're a teenager who needs, pro-vigil or something else in order to stay awake um, or drink coffee or whatever. Um, and <clears throat> that like the, your sleeping problem is really a kind of mismatch between your biological desire for sleep and the institutional times that are normative, right? And so if we just had different institutional times or even flexible institutional times, then you would see far fewer sleep disorders in society, which doesn't mean that like narcolepsy would go away. There are like very clear biological conditions that lead to narcolepsy and it's always a challenge, but like you could have more tolerant institutions that would allow people to be, sleepy at all sorts of different times of the day. Wedding season is coming up, and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. 
a lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. All right, if you have a family, then you need to get term life insurance to protect them. It's one of the smartest financial decisions you can make, and the start of the new year is the perfect time to get it done so you can focus on whatever else the year has in store for you. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. There's no risk to apply. They have a 30-day money-back guarantee, and you can cancel at any time. I remember when I was a new dad, I had a lot of thoughts going through my head. One of them was, how can I take care of my family when I'm gone, if something happens to me? Well, it's one of the first things I did. I got term life insurance, one of the best decisions I made. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash manliness. That's meetfabric.com slash manliness. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash manliness. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently, I went through the Masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. A lot of useful information in there. Talked about the value of knowing a negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM. Masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. Yeah, we'll get back to that. I want to get back to that, what we can do about our different sleeping schedules and trying to fit into work and school. But um, yeah, you also make the point that in the past 10 years, there's been this proliferation of uh, medications to get us awake and to put us to sleep. And so a lot of people are on this vicious cycle where they'll, you know, they'll take an energy drink to wake up or a pot of coffee. And then at night, and then they, they keep drinking during the day. So they stay awake. And then at night they take some sort of medicine, uh, to help them fall asleep. Um, so in what's, what's going on there is, is this something that's just recent or was this something that started, you know, a century ago or decades ago? Um, this seems pretty recent. Like it seems like a real intensification of things that have been happening for a long time. So it, and so it's not like it's totally new, but the intensity of it is pretty new. So one of um, one of my favorite books that I'll plug is called Sweetness and Power by an uh, anthropologist named Sidney Mintz. And the story that he tells is that industrialization in Europe really depends on exporting sugar and coffee and tea from the Caribbean in order to keep workers awake 
throughout the day, right? And so like the idea of tea time in Britain is really based on this idea that like you could either take a nap or you drink some caffeine at that point in the day, right? Um, and that we've lost taking those naps and accepted having some caffeine in the afternoon in order to stay awake for the rest of the workday, right? Um, and, <clears throat> and so, you know, coffee or caffeination really and sugar have always been tied to labor as we know it. But the way that we're um, medicalizing sleep and kind of alertness these days is, is much more intense, right? So you can just think about the widespread popularity of Starbucks, right? That like 20 years ago, there were not coffee shops the way that there are now, right? Mm -hmm. And now there's Starbucks everywhere, right? That this like incitement to always be caffeinated is something that's really pervasive, right? And, um, and so if you look at the numbers about people who have problems sleeping at night, something like a third of Americans, the numbers change a little bit, but it's about like a third to um, almost a half of Americans complain about problems falling to sleep or staying asleep in any given year, right? That people have at least intermittent insomnia. And so, you know, there's more and more people who are using off-label um, sleep aids, so like Tylenol PM, right, rather than Lunesta or Ambien or something like that, or NyQuil, which is a terrible idea, right? But, that you know, there are a variety of ways that people are helping themselves get to sleep and also keeping themselves awake throughout the day, right? And it becomes this kind of vicious cycle because if you're taking more and more Ambien, you need more and more coffee to offset the debt that you're kind of accruing, the sleep, the, what's sometimes referred to as sleep drunkenness, that you wake up and you're still kind of sleepy, so you need more and more coffee, right? Um, and there can be, I, you know, there's stories in the book about, there's one guy who reports to his uh, sleep doctor that he drinks something like four pots of coffee a day. Yeah, like, it's like five pots, yeah. So, uh, uh, but like, you know, that, that's like 16 cups of coffee a day, right? And um, that, you know, that's a profound amount of caffeine to be putting into your system. Yeah. But the assumption is that, like, we need to do it in order to meet the work needs that we have, right? So the alternative might be that, you know, you have workplace napping, right? That, like, instead of having, you know, coffee free for everybody that you give people a place to go take a nap and there's some workplaces that have experimented with that but the big problem that they run into is that people don't want to be the napper right like they don't want to be the guy who's sleeping at his desk or in some cases what they'll do is they'll take an office and turn it into a napping space and so you don't want to be the guy that's, you know, going into the napping space or coming out of the napping space. And so a lot of the people that I talk to about napping at work, they're like, you know, I just like will get in my car, go to the nearest fast food place and, you know, sleep in the parking lot. Right. Like rather than see my have my co-workers see me sleep. Um, and so there's really like we need an attitude shift about sleeping in some respects. Um, yeah, I think it's funny about NyQuil is that they have z now. <laughs> they just realized, oh, everyone's just taking this to go to sleep. They don't really have a, they don't have the flu or the cold. So let's just make something okay. with alcohol and, you know, whatever that drug is that make you sleepy. Yeah. 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 And I think it's interesting with the nap thing in, in businesses that's sort of becoming a thing. And it's not because, you know, businesses are like, they want to take care of their employees. They, they want it. They're doing it for productivity, right? I think it's kind of ironic, you know, decades ago, they're like, no, no napping. You need to work be productive. And now they're saying, oh, well, yeah, nap, because you're going to be more productive. We can get more out of you. Yeah. And that's it. That's the weird, the paradox of it, right? Is that like, um, you as an employee might really want to take a nap, but what employers have discovered is that if you take that nap, they'll get way more labor out of you for free, right? So if you're a salaried employee, by five o'clock, you just want to go home, right? If you take a nap at 2.30 and you wake up at three, you're good until seven or eight o'clock at night, right? Um, maybe even later than that. And so a lot of businesses realize that they can get more 
work out of people just by giving them a nap allowance, pretty much. And so I had also talked to a bunch of people at a law firm where they had a napping facility and they all realized that they were self-exploiting, right? That like they had started staying later and later and they collectively decided to stop using the napping facilities, right? That like they just wanted to go home. Um, and so there is this kind of like, uh, damned if you do damned if you yeah. don't around the workplace stamp. Yeah. So, so besides using uh, medication for off label uses, you know, Tylenol PM or NyQuil, um, to go to sleep, there's also a lot of entrepreneurs, you're reading about this a lot, entrepreneurs, business executives, you know, high powered attorneys who are taking very powerful stimulating drugs that, you know, that are used for people who have you know, severe sleep disorders, uh, like Provigil or Modafinil. Um, not because they don't have a problem with sleep or waking up, it's just like they just want to stay awake longer so they can get more work done. Have you looked into that sort of like, there's like a cult of modafinil on the internet. Yeah. Um, and you know, students talk about it all the time. Like in among my students, I've seen over the last 10 years, total ignorance to provigil to widespread knowledge about it and sometimes use of it. Right. That like, um, like Ritalin drugs, you know, so for a long time, only people with Ritalin use those drugs. And now it's like, well, everybody does it during exams. Right. Um, and you know, there's a lot of people who swear by pro vigil, um, and the new version of it, which is called new vigil. Um, you know, it's used by the military to keep people awake for a while. Um, it's expensive, you know, like the, and I think one of the real challenges around it is that, um, what we see in the kind of off-label pharmaceuticalization of um, everyday life is that, you know, some of these things are available to certain classes of people and they're not available to other classes of people, right? And so, you know, sure, if you're an elite business person, you can get your doctor to write you a prescription for a new vigil, but most of us don't have access to that, right? Um and so instead, we drink a bunch of caffeine to keep up with people who are using that kind of drug. Nobody really knows what the long-term effects of drugs like that are, yeah, though. Yeah, it's only uh, been out for, you know, like 10 years or so, right? Yeah, you know, and so even the military has kind of backed away from using it quite so much because they, they're they not sure what the effects of it are going to be. And, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a new kind of stimulant for the central nervous system and you know there's some doubts about what its effects will be so you know in some cases what people might be doing is getting some kind of gain in the short term but really facing neurological problems in the long term and we just kind of have to wait and see yeah well speaking of sort of like this sort of division between individuals who can afford drugs to keep them away can be super productive and individual individuals who can't let's talk about like the future of sleep i mean you kind of allude to this a little bit in your book and no one really knows what the future of sleep but it seems like there's this push to end sleep mm-hmm. right amongst a certain group of people so they can be super productive all the time um what is the future sleep? Is that going to happen? Are we going to genetically modify ourselves where we don't need sleep anymore? Yeah. I, the, um, I think the future of sleep is to keep asking about the future of sleep. Yeah. Right. You know that, um, and it's one of the things that I track in the, the book that like, you know, people have been asking about the future of sleep since at least the turn of the 20th century. Right. That's how it always goes. Yeah. Uh, um, and, um, you know, so like the early, the, 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 there's uh, early stuff about like, how do you maximize your sleep? Like, can you learn a foreign language in your sleep? Yeah. Which, you know, you still see people talking about, can you learn while you're sleeping? Not really. Um, can we get rid of sleep altogether? Probably not. You know, that if you think about life on earth, we everything sleeps right so plants sleep every other animal species sleep we sleep um and you know we're not entirely sure what sleep does we do know it has some pretty important effects on like 
our memory and our ability to learn new things, our stress levels, you know, so if you're not sleeping really well, um, you get stressed out way more easy. And so, you know, the question might be like, if we get rid of sleep at what cost, right? Mm -hmm. So like chances are, if we get rid of sleep, we're not going to be the humans that we are today. We're going to look very different. Right. And, um, so there, the, there's a book series by Nancy Kress called Beggars in Spain, where they do genetically modify humans to get rid of sleep. And her presumption is that like, when you lose sleeping, you lose basically creative potential, right? That like, there's something about sleeping and dreaming that's really important to our ability to create and even kind of be human. And so the people who get rid of sleep in her world are just like, cold calculating computer people right um and so you know that might index a sort of anxiety about like what we would actually be losing when we lose sleep um that being said you know the future of sleep might be um tinkering with it more right and so one of the one of the scientists I find, I find really interesting is this Italian uh, guy named Claudio Stampi, who is a yacht racer, and he uh, does these experiments on um, what he refers to as ultra-short sleep. So it's basically catnapping for humans, that like you're awake for a short period, you go to sleep for a short period, you're awake for a short period, so you don't have long sleeping periods. It's like polyphagic sleep, right? Right, yeah. Yeah. And so you can, I think it's still online. There's he, this uh, Frontline episode, I think, that he was on. Uh, and you can find this footage of him running this experiment with an undergraduate where the kid has to wake up, do a performance test every two hours, then he goes back to sleep. And after about 30 days, it's just getting harder and harder for this kid to wake up. But in the end, you know, he's pretty groggy when he does get up, but he can still actually get through his performance tests pretty well, which points to, you know, this idea that maybe we could organize sleep differently, right? That like the 24 hour society might not be everybody being awake all the time, but it might be that, you know, some people are going to be able to organize their work in ways that are different than this kind of consolidated work and sleep period. Yeah. Didn't Kramer on Seinfeld like do an experiment with that? Like, yeah, it didn't work out for him. Yeah. They call it the, like, uh, it's how Leonardo da Vinci apparently slept, which is, um, it's something like half an hour every four hours. Yeah. Something like that. Right. And it, it really doesn't work out for Kramer. doesn't work out for him. And yeah, the whole idea of like getting rid of sleep, like if they did, I don't know what I would do with myself, honestly. Right. It's like, I would be bored out of my, I mean, one of the reasons I enjoy sleep because like it takes up time when I have nothing else going on. Well, that, that's the thing that, um, one, uh, you know, like I love my family. Yeah. But we spend a lot of time together already. Sure. And the prospect of spending eight more hours a day with my four year old son is like, is a crazy prospect. Right. And so if we did get to the point where we we're awake all the time, um, we would have to really restructure what society looks like, yeah. right? Like, um, we it doesn't mean that we would have eight hours of recreation. We would probably be finding other ways to organize what we're doing. Yeah. Um, so, and that's what I kind of mean that, like, if we get rid of sleep, we're not going to be the human beings that we are today, right? That, like, everything is going to change if we got rid of sleep. So, I don't know. I think your book came out right before, like, this the uptick in, like, tracking devices where you can track your steps and there's even device where you can track your sleep it's this whole quantified self thing so this idea of being able to track not only how many hours you sleep but your quality of sleep i even bought one of those like zeo things like you strap it to your head and like it reads your brain waves does this sort of entrench people more into the idea that okay you need to sleep you know eight hours straight or nine hours or does it give people information where they can start tinkering and with their own sleep schedule i think it does both right okay. and so the I, the thing that i would point to and i is and um is that 
you know, there are cultural assumptions embedded in all of this technology, right? So if the technology really assumes that consolidated sleep is the only way that you're getting good sleep, then it's probably a problem. If the technology is a little more flexible and is able to work with whatever kind of sleep schedule you want to work towards, then it might be a little more liberatory, right? And so, like, one of the things that I tell people to do, and this is based on clinical practice, is that, like, if you really want to figure out what kind of sleeper you are, you need probably about two weeks of not waking up to an alarm clock, right? And so, like, what the project is, is that you go to sleep when you're tired, you time how long you go to sleep for, you are awake when you're awake, right? And you, you know, maybe you have a cup of coffee, right? But you don't drink lots of caffeine. You also don't drink a lot of alcohol or anything like that. You're just trying to isolate what your sleep is actually like, right? And um, and so what? one of the things that you can discern by doing that is what an actual sleep period is. So if you look at what the physiology of sleep is, you have these roughly two-hour periods of um, moving through the different stages of sleep. And um, and so our sleep is always kind of built up of a certain number of those periods, right? So when we talk about consolidated sleep, what we're thinking about is four of those periods kind of smashed together. <clears throat> but it, because the two-hour number is pretty soft like it can be anywhere between an hour and a half or three hours that a sleep period is and you always want to be sleeping in factors of that period right so like if you've got a technology that helps you figure out what your sleep period actually is and is helping you kind of abide by the, it's like those a factor of those periods then you're probably using that technology pretty well or it's it's decent technology right um if you're being shamed by your technology because you're not sleeping eight hours a night that's a problem right yeah um, yeah i think the uh, the zeo does that because like it'll give you a sleep score and uh -huh. like give you suggestions like you need to do this like to improve your sleep i'm like okay i will, I will do that algorithm yeah right right um and so like i the and, you know, the other thing, I, like apps on your phone that, like, are supposed to monitor how well you're sleeping by putting it under your pillow, no. probably not worth the money, that right? That, like, even, we, it's called actigraphy technology, and it's a bracelet that people put on in order to um, clinically track their movements. And so you can look at somebody's actigraphy report to see when they're awake and when they're asleep pretty much right but if you're a really active sleeper it's a bad technology for you right and if you sit at a desk all day and you don't move your left arm very much yeah. it's also a bad technology yeah right? that's happened to so. me with this the fitbit like it'll i'll be like on you know sitting writing for you know two hours and they'll say you were taking a nap it's like no i wasn't i was i was writing right okay. uh, yeah and so i think that's you know that's one of those things that people always need to think about like what is the cultural assumption embedded in this technology right and i'm a little the, the whole quantified self stuff i'm a little skeptical of more broadly because it you know it, it really is emphasizing these ideas about productivity right and um and i think that you know ideas about being productive are ways that we tie ourselves to self exploitation right that like if all we're thinking about is whether or not we're being productive like we have sold out to the system <laughs> sold your soul so i mean here's the question i know your book is primarily descriptive and it's not prescriptive but and you've kind of alluded to this a bit, what people can do, but what if you have a sleep schedule that just doesn't fit the norm? Mm -hmm. um, what can you do? And do you think technology is giving us more flexibility in how we work and how we school that will allow us to, I don't know, change our schedule so it fits our personal sleep schedule? I, um, for some people, yes. Right? That like one of the... Um, so one of the recommendations that I make is that we need to think about flex time for all of the institutions that we interact with, right? 
So some workplaces have this idea that you can come into work late and work late, right? Or you can take a day off and make that day up some other way, right? And that that flexibility in the schedule is something that um, historically has really been for the most elite workers, right? Um, and but it provides us a model for thinking about how we might structure institutional time across different kinds of workplaces within schools, especially. I think having that model in schools would be great. Um, but you can also think about it related to you know family and recreation and stuff like that. That like we need a little more flexibility in order to address the different styles of sleep that people have. And, um, and the challenge in that kind of recommendation is that it, you know, it's really because it's so tied to elite labor in the past, it's difficult to get, um, other kinds of labor on board with that schedule. Right. So, if we want to pick on Starbucks, right. That like, because it's a low paying job, they're going to give you the hours that they can give you. If you can't work those hours, you're just going to get fired. Right. And, and so what, you know, what we might need to think about is the kind of like careful management of a work population. Right. So if you find workers that are good in the morning and bad at night, then you schedule them in the morning and you schedule other workers at night. Right. And it depends on kind of taking seriously people's variation in sleep and how it might actually fit into scheduling more generally, right? Um, you know, I think for, like, the so-called creative class, technology makes things a lot easier, right, that we can telecommute all the time, um, or you can work kind of flexible hours. But, you know, the real question is, what do we do with everybody else, right? Um, because everybody else are also the people who have the worst health insurance and they're probably most likely to self-medicate through ZQL or alcohol or amphetamines or whatever else. Right. So if you really want a kind of equitable society, we need to think about how we arrange school time and work time and family time in a way that's in some ways agreeable to everybody. Right. And so instead of having this, static schedule we need to think about what can we actually do in order to make it a little more livable interesting well matthew wolfmeyer this has been a fascinating discussion um thanks so much for your time it's been a pleasure thanks brett it's been a pleasure for me too our guest today was matthew j wolfmeyer he's the author of the book the slumbering masses you can find that on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly.